0: Hello and welcome to the Sound Weavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features violinist Dominic Celerni of the Ataka Quartet. We hope you enjoy?
1: Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk. Welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore. And today, my delightful co-host in this Zoom room is the wonderful Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you doing this fine morning, my dear? Hi,
0: Rosie. I'm doing well. How are you?
1: I'm just dandy. Well, we have one of the violinists from the Grammy Award-winning Attacker Quartet. They have been described by the Washington Post as... Although they may be a relatively young ensemble, they already have come close to epitomizing the string quartet ideal for strikingly individual players with the ability to speak eloquently in one voice. So, as I said, we are joined by one of the violinists, Dominic Salerni. Uh, I will never say that with that Italian accent ever again. (laughs) So without further ado, thank you so much, Dom, for joining us this morning.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: The Nation has described the Ataka Quartet as living in the present aesthetically without rejecting the virtues of the musical past. Can you share a little bit about how this statement reflects your mission as an ensemble?
2: Sure. Uh, so the Ataka Quartet is uh, approaching 20 years of being a quartet. And one of the early projects of the group was uh, something called the 68. and um, it was a very deep dive in all of the string quartets that Haydn wrote. Of course, Haydn being sort of the progenitor of the form, uh, this was not only a way of really kind of immersing in his compositional language, but also uh, discovering what it meant to, to be a string quartet. And, and I think, you know, if you ask any of the rest of, uh, of my guys, the, they will be the first to tell you, oh, this is how we found our sound. That's the past. Uh, but also there's sort of this notion of getting to know composers, uh, individual composers particularly. uh, And and so, you know, when we do recordings, um, I think you'll notice uh, it's all of Caroline Shaw or all of John Adams or all of Michael Lipolito or et cetera, et cetera. So that we've sort of uh, taken the lesson of, well, to really know a composer, try to play as much of their works as possible forward into the 20th and 21st century.
0: Speaking of the past, Beethoven's string quartet cycles are viewed as the creme de la creme project for any string quartet that's operating in a traditional classical music context. But just like the composers who aspired to Beethoven's symphonic model while living under his shadow, it seems that most string quartets approach this type of project with the same kind of trepidation, right? How does your ensemble approach a project like this in a way that lives up to that foundation of the string quartets that came before you while also breathing fresh life into these works?
2: Yeah, it's reminding me of of something my my mother's uh, mentor, Italo Tayo, once said, Laura, there are good traditions and there are bad traditions, which is, of course, a very, you know, personal kind of take. It's funny you mentioned the Beethoven cycle because it's something that we were slated to do uh, before, you know, the the, the lockdown of the world. Yeah, I mean, okay, it was terrifying because for me as the, the incoming, you know, new second violinist, it was sort of like, all right, Dom, you got to learn the 16, 17 Beethoven quartets. And I had played most of them on first violin in, you know, a previous life, but to come and do that sort of like flying by the seat of my pants was totally exhilarating. And also like, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this. I mean, the Beethoven cycle, yeah, is is uh, is sort of like your red badge of courage, right? As a string quartet, you just dive in, you know? And it's funny because most, most groups end up playing one or two of the Mendelssohn's, the Beethoven's, you know, insert old dead white guy. Um, but to sit with some of these guys for uh, for a while and to be able to play, you know, some of these pieces many, many, many times on tour, you know, that's where you really learn, you know, what's going on. You learn the composer's voice. You kind of, you, you almost are able to create a sense of, of their personality. I know uh, Andrew recently, uh, we, we were just featured in um, Amsterdam. We were playing the Haydn's uh, Seven Last Words as arranged by Andrew Yee. And Andrew was like, yeah, I would love to get a beer with Haydn because I think he would be just freaking hilarious, you know, to try to bring your own personality to something is is part of interpretation. But also we would hope that everything that's written on the, on the page is, is, is everything you would possibly need as sort of like square one and then from there, you have a certain amount of freedom with which to to put your own imprimatur on, on stuff. And Okay, so fast forward, to get to work in the same room as someone like John Adams, or to have Caroline Shaw lying down, you know, supine, listening to her own music as, you know, we're recording it, is a totally different experience. We'd love to have that opportunity with, uh, with the old greats, but to be able to do that live and in person, it's just like... Oh my god.
0: I mean, so it's interesting actually that you say that because one of the things that I'm thinking about is is just the fact that you know like when we talk about tradition we have this concept of it being static, right? Mm. Um but tradition is actually it's this constantly moving target, right? Because I'm just thinking about you know you're talking about how you played the Beethovens on violin 1 and then you switched to violin 2 with a different group and obviously whatever your concept of the the tradition that you were creating with the Beethoven cycle before changed because you had three new people that you were negotiating an interpretation with. Right. Oh, like, absolutely. What does that experience look like in practical terms, like in rehearsal? I mean, are you having, like, are you duking it out? Like, no, I really feel this strongly, you know, <laughs> or, or do you find that it's more of a kind of uh, nebulous, something that you can't quite put your finger on, but you know it's happening type of thing.
2: Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, this speaks to this, I think, really popularized notion of the second violin as some sort of hierarchically inferior position you know the role of, of second violin is support it's also flexibility it's also kind of like you're a glue uh, and you you in in ways you're almost like a second violist sometimes mm-hmm. you know and so you kind of have this chameleonic you know if I could split my eyes and look at my violist and cellist over here and and my, you know, first violinist over here, like, you know, I would totally love to do that. But no, no, when when it came to doing the cycle from the perspective of a former first violinist, it was actually incredibly liberating because A, I didn't have to play those notes, (laughs) but B, I knew the part. So it was like, you know, if I could do anything that I, I could possibly do to make Amy's life easier, but also you know connect with with my guys on on the low end of of the quartet. you know, it, it was just and we we had very little time, you know, so it was like coming in half the time sight reading some of this stuff. you know, so having had that experience of playing the first part, kind of like made my life at least 25% easier that I could try to blend sound with Nate or like, you know, really lock into the bass with Andrew or like play a slightly louder octave for Amy or, you know, whatever I'm supposed to do.
0: On a different note. How does your ensemble balance the demands of being a fully functioning string quartet while also pursuing solo and orchestral performance opportunities, not to mention the beginnings of family life for several of your ensemble members? Oh, gosh,
2: (laughs) if that's not the question of the millennium, (laughs) you know, it's funny. I was just we were on tour in in Prague and mm-hmm. i had this wonderful opportunity to go hear the zemlinski quartet live mm-hmm. in looney yeah an awesome group and it was an all divorce program the zemlinski's are first i really have a lot of respect for them but it's it's four guys and amongst them they have nine quartet babies <laughs>
1: it. Love
2: and they teach at the Prague conservatory and you know, it's insane what they do. And I, I, and that was so inspiring for me. I'm like the one, you know, hold out, you know, I don't have any progeny that I know of. So, um, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just hanging out like, Hey, I, I could be uncle Dom. Like, you know, if you need me to babysit, like whatever, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a challenge, but it's also a, a wonderful, we're discovering how flexible presenters particularly are. Uh, Amy is the first uh, to have have a baby, and and Andrew and Des just had theirs oh just a few weeks ago, you know. So things like breastfeeding, is there a fridge? Is there a freezer? You know, can a parent or uh you know a a, a beloved spouse you know come along you know on the trip, or how are we going to organize? Uh, yeah, a sitter for whenever we're gone. It's definitely sort of change our approach as far as tours. I think we're, we're going to be on the road perhaps a little bit less or in shorter chunks. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a thing, but it, it boils down to scheduling. It
0: boils down to, yeah, just being flexible. I ask this because I think that it is the question of the century right now. We're all trying to renegotiate exactly what we're doing. And now that the standard work model, you know, the, the mm-hmm. I go to work for 40 hours a week and go away. I mean, we never did that as musicians to begin with. But now that everything is changing and and we're starting to renegotiate exactly how everything works, I'm wondering, you know, how do you sustain yourselves do you have like a two weeks on two weeks off policy like is there paid time off and vacation time you know how do you like organize the organization what
2: is, what is this europe paid time off <laughs> are you I'm not crazy right.
0: <laughs> no
2: uh actually it, okay this is this might be of use to other groups but we do have a policy that if if people uh need to take off uh we do um shunt some of our uh, fee towards them so, for example, like Amy, you know, took some time and, and Andrew took some time and, and Nate and, and Becca are going to have a kid like any day now. That's sort of something that we've built into, into the model. I mean, as far as like, I don't think we have strict policies for anything, which is, I think, part of the the secret sauce of the Otaku Quartet. But, um, <laughs> for example, I was just in Baltimore subbing with the symphony for about a month. Um, I mean, I was grateful for the opportunity, but it was also like, yeah, well, this is time where, you know, Andrew Dez are going to be nesting with with little oat. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I I got some free time, so I'm going to make use of it. And I still got rent to pay, right? So, you know, I, I, I don't think we've ever had sort of hard and fast two weeks on, two weeks off sort of thing, but basically we prioritize the quartet and then if we have to do our own things you know we put it in the in the diary our uh, management is uh, british so i'm learning all of these uh, <laughs> new terms <laughs> i was like the diary is a like, dear no diary planner. oh like yeah. the schedule oh my god the planner <laughs> yeah exactly so i'm like you know so this that's been sort of a fun learning cor- uh, learning curve for me but um yeah we just we just make it work
1: just mentioned management, which leads so beautifully into the next question. Can you talk a bit about the pros and cons of artist management? This seems to be such a question for specifically soloists and chamber groups. When is a good time to secure management? How do you even go about finding it and all of those things?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And again, I don't think there's a singular answer. Um, I, I've, this is my third professional string quartet. The first one I was in was self-managed. The second had a very boutique, like two or three-person uh, management team, and now we have sort of like a four to five-person team that's a small subsidiary of a much larger company. Management is necessary sometimes, and I think it really depends on on who you're talking about and what you're trying to get out of it. So for us, management has been wonderful uh, as far as offloading some of the administrative duties of the quartet, but also uh, securing perhaps different uh, concerts and and venues and and establishing relationships uh, with presenters. To go back to sort of like a more boutique model, I mean, the old school... Kind of way of going about things is well, you go to the conference and you know you're there, and presenters are there, and potential groups or acts or soloists are there, and you sort of have this wonderful little love feast where everyone says, "Oh, great! Well, I'll work with you and and check out my wonderful stable of of extraordinary musicians." And that happens for years and years and years, and you build as the manager, you know, you build this kind of roster of of people you feel comfortable working with. You know, of course, social media has totally upended that. Um, and so I think a lot of people are like, I don't need to manage. I'm just going to do this myself.
1: It looks like you have different management for when you play in uh, South America and in Spain. Is that normal for ensembles or is that something that's specific to your particular ensemble? Uh,
2: no, I mean, it's something that happens. Uh, you know, I think it, part, partly it's just a, it's a, a distribution of work thing. You know, uh, like uh, polyarts is based in in England and in France, and and they have their contacts in in certain countries, and and Desiree, you know, has a number of contacts in in Spain and South America. So I think it just it's sort of something that was a natural outgrowth of well, Ataka is doing more work here. So hey, maybe we can have someone who kind of take care take takes care of that.
1: So there's no exclusivity between the two of them. They're very, very much like, oh, well, this is a Spanish concert in Barcelona. So you're going to go through Desiree for Yeah. That's I think
2: change. that's how yeah. that works. Yeah. I mean, they, they seem to work very well together. So so in our particular case it's a some it's a pretty harmonious thing.
0: What do you think is happening with institutions like Juilliard, like Lincoln Center, like Eastman, like all of these other kind of educational and cultural institutions, Carnegie Hall, all of this stuff. Did you see As Carnegie we- Hall's rebranding? Ooh, no. Oh no, I didn't see this. Go no,
2: check out the new logo. I think okay. that'll
0: I'll tell you a lot. Interesting. <laughs> this is why we're well, the- <laughs> I mean, where do you see all of this going? I mean, do you do you see institutions morphing or do you see them folding?
2: Uh well, uh, yeah, I see a lot of both. Part of the issue is is that there is an aging audience. There's also an aging donor base. And so once the money dries up, oh, bye-bye. What's wonderful about being in a string quartet right now is that the institution of us is us. Yeah, you know, I mean, right. we we are fortunate. I mean, I, I we're talking about Juilliard. I mean, you know, Ataka Quartet was formed at Juilliard. And Juilliard has been incredibly supportive. And I think it really depends on the institution how quickly they can adapt. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mm -hmm. speed is uh, in inverse relation to how large an organization is, you know, and how many subscribers or donors or whomever they have to answer to. As boards change, as the demographics of boards change, I think you're going to see, you're already seeing, I think, a major shift. And a lot of this is predicated on, uh, you know, the the protests of of June 2020. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sort of like, how are institutions responding to that particular moment on top of the pandemic? ever If there's ever been a time to learn something, it's now. I want to point to a really interesting article, which is a review of a concert at the Lincoln Center Chamber Music Society that was written by Zachary Wolfe in the New York Times. Just go ahead and read that.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, you mentioned the, the size of an institution as being inversely related to the speed with which they can make change. It, it makes you wonder whether some of these institutions like Juilliard or NEC where they are more standalone institutions, whether they will be more flexible than something like an Eastman, which is tethered to a rather large university, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be interested to see how that plays out too. I don't know. I mean, I'm no
2: philosopher, but you know, the more specialized you get as a culture, the more siloed people can get. And I think that, you know, when you think of genre particularly, you know, I, you go back, go back to high school. Oh, I only listen to punk. Oh, I only listen to rap. Oh, I only listen to country. It's like, these are marketing tools, right? Mm-hmm. So get away from the kind of consumerist approach to this is what I would say. But also, and I see big institutions trying to cater to these different genres. For example, oh my God, we're going to play the movie score to a movie while the movie plays, you know, or now we're going to play Bruckner 8. Oh, but now we're gonna play Stockhausen. Oh, but now we're and these are, you know, or or we're gonna do video game music. That'll bring in the young people. And it does for that particular concert. There's no crossover. You know, how do you cross pollinate that? Yeah.
1: So we're going to take a different track now and talk about you signing with Sony Classical in 2021 after previously uh, producing albums on Nonsuch recordings. How did you go about securing your relationships between these labels? And what should an artist or ensemble look for when searching for a label?
2: Oh, man. Well, so Nonsuch's big thing is that they uh, are composer-focused. So I think there is something attractive about oh, this group wants to play everything that Caroline Shaw has written for string quartet at this particular moment. Um, so that was that was sort of the driving uh, motivator for that. For Sony, we got on their radar, uh, perhaps from the Grammy momentum, but also because, oh yeah, so for aspiring artists, just go out and win a Grammy and then Sony <laughs> will call. Ha ha. Just kidding. Just kidding. And that's another thing, but that happens. People are like, how did you do it? How did you win that? It's like, no, it's not how you... Get a Grammy. You don't go out to get a Grammy. You do the work, and hopefully, and then people
1: the like it. Universe yeah.
2: responds to you. Exactly. No, that's yeah. Anyway, but uh, for Sony, it was more. You know, we had some contacts, and uh, we're kind of, you know, an introduction was made, and and they took an interest, and it was a long process actually. And I came in sort of midway through that, so some of that for me is still in the murky, you know, before times. But um, it continues to be a process, and you know, we've sort of fine tuned our. Uh, relationship in our communications uh, mm-hmm. with Sony. And that's largely been a very positive thing for
0: us. So going in a slightly different direction now, what are some of the community engagement projects that your Quartet has pursued? And what are your objectives for community engagement? How do you establish and maintain relationships with community partners, those sorts of things?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, each one of us individually, I think, approaches community slightly differently. Um, so Amy, for example, uh, is a wonderful teacher, and she has a studio of, of violinists, and uh, I think she, you know, finds incredible um, satisfaction from, from the from the pedagogical end of things, uh, and specifically to, to the violin. Uh, Nate uh, has a nonprofit called Music Cambia, where, you know, he works uh, to found and grow uh, Educational programs in prison. Oh, that's
1: that's mm-hmm. really, really. um
2: Yeah, and and then and Andrew, uh, you know, aside from also being a wonderful composer, um, Andrew also, you know, has taken uh, the idea of uh, visibility in in terms of uh, uh, trans mm-hmm. rights, but also just generally in the LGBT community, very seriously. So, you know, when we're doing, say, we're asked to do a residency, it could, besides the concerts, it might involve. Uh, some master classes with college kids or, you know, going into an elementary school and playing for them and talking with them. Uh, but it also could involve, you know, uh, a community event at, at, say, the local pride center. You know, uh, if I was personally, so I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. My father works at Lehigh University. Lehigh, you know, has a history of being an engineering mm-hmm. school largely and has a, you know, very storied uh, fraternity culture. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you were white and male and like to get drunk, and, you know, you'd go to Lehigh and, and that's, you know, that's a, that's an old definition. And so to be able to, you know, play and talk at the Lehigh University Pride Center for me was like, wow, I can't believe this is the same institution. I mean, this is the kind of growth I'd love to see everywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so that was really cool, you know, and, and um, so we tried to, we try to be open to that you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we're looking at a residency in the fall where we're going to be working in elementary schools and I think middle schools as well in uh, Capitol Hill. So, you know, this is a function of there being a community that, you know, is fairly tight, tightly knit and saying, how are we going to uh, reach out or, or you know, uh, kind of get everyone involved? So, you know, we're all about that. I think, you know, who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. You, you know, mm-hmm. so so a community is, is are, are the people immediately around you but also you can touch people especially now with all this remote stuff you know countries countries away
1: so we've come to the final question and this is a little roulette can you pick a or b
2: uh just without knowing what a or b is
1: (laughs) it's question roulette
2: Uh, all right well because the target starts with a let's go with a
1: if you could curate or commission any show what would it be Hmm. Any show, any show. So it it doesn't just have to be music, it could be string quartet mixed with multimedia Cirque du Soleil styles stuff, not to put ideas in your head, but it could oh. be any anything whatsoever. And money, money is no object, you've been given the largest NEA grant that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> oh,
0: so... Plus a MacArthur, plus oh, okay. you know, everything but, else.
2: MacArthur's more the money I'm looking at, because any A-grant would be about $40, but I'm totally kidding. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, well, okay, this is something that I've sort of done in a previous life, but I'd love to see it. Um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, as, as read by Steve Buscemi, with Pickett, I don't know, Beethoven, Caroline Shaw, John Adams, interspersed with... Some some quartets. I think that'd be really fun. Or I got another one for you. V- Winterreise, done with string quartet. Ooh. Sung by Caroline Shaw. Oh.
1: Can we That's make fancy. that happen? Can someone one of our listeners please um give us I know, right? give the attacker no, Caroline, quartet Car- somebody for
2: that? We have already floated it by Caroline and, and I, I I she sort of her eyebrows went up. Oh, but she's so busy <laughs> right now. I mean, she's she's so busy, it's crazy. <laughs>
1: My goodness. So with that, thank you so, so much uh, to the wonderful Dom, who is one of the violinists from the Attacker Quartet for sitting down and having a lovely chat with us this morning. This has been delightful and so eye-opening and all of the things. You can find all of the Attacker Quartet's info down in the show notes, and we will look forward to speaking to you all soon.
2: Amazing. Thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast and on Twitter at SW Chambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweaver's team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Caroline Shaw, Andrew Yee, and Nathan Schramm, and performed by the Ataka Quartet. On behalf of the Soundweaver's cast, see you in two weeks.